This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast of Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, magnificent planet of ours to find the most insightful, the most inspirational, and indeed the most interesting thought leaders from all walks of life. This week, we have Richard Harries, Baron Harries, actually, of Pentagraph. Hello, Richard. Hello. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. It's a crisp December morning here. And it is here too. Marvellous. As a way of introduction, do you want to just give us just a little bit about your background? I kind of drifted into the army, into Sandhurst, after I left school. And then when I'd been in the army for four years as an an officer and was about to go up to Cambridge to read engineering at the army's expense, I suddenly had a very, very strong sense of vocation. Right. So I left the army, went up to Cambridge to read theology and then trained for ordination and was ordained. And I've had a wonderfully varied life in different parishes, and teaching theology, and then I ended up as Bishop of Oxford. You were also Dean of King's College in London, weren't you? I was Dean of King's College London before I was Bishop of Oxford, that's right, yes. Do you think that you really have to have a vocation to do what you do? Is it a calling, or is it something slightly different? I mean, I think I and people in my position are wonderfully lucky if we get a very clear sense of what we want to do. Most people particularly young people today, they wonder what they ought to do and they're never quite sure. They go through most of their life not quite sure what mm. they ought to do. So I regard myself as very, very blessed, actually from that point, having a very clear sense of what I was meant to do. You speak about young people. Is this something that goes through all generations nowadays in terms of not being sure what one is supposed to be doing? Economic circumstances force people to do something, but I think it's wonderful if people can discover what talents they have and find a way of living which they can use those talents and where those talents are of use to other people. Those are the essential ingredients of a calling, finding something you can do which is of use to other people and finding a way of actually expressing that. During lockdown, people have been finding so many different things. What has been your experience of lockdown? Well, the first lockdown where I live in London was quite amazing. Normally, we're oppressed with the noise of planes overhead and, of course, the incessant noise of cars and building works. But suddenly, there was blissful silence. And at the same time, the weather was good and we had brilliant light. And the combination of silence and light created a kind of paradise, enhanced, of course, by the fact that we could hear the birds as never before and exult in the vibrancy of spring. Yet at the same time, every day, people were dying in their hundreds, Particularly distressing was the fact that people were dying without able to physically say goodbye to their families and friends. Oh, my God. Yeah. And what remains me above all is the extraordinary contrast between the silence and light and vibrant spring on the one hand, almost heavenly in its effect, and the great suffering and sadness that was the continuing experience of so many. It really was heartbreaking watching this. 
And what are your feelings now that we are getting close to Christmas itself? Well, what I think about Christmas is very directly related to my experience in lockdown, the extraordinary contrasts in life. On the one hand, so much suffering, and on the other, so much beauty, so much selfishness, and also, as the lockdown showed, so much neighbourly kindness and support of others. Now, if life was all bad, there'd be no intellectual puzzle, but there is great goodness as well as evil. Uh, and the problem is not just how you count for the evil in life, but how do you count for all the good? I'm continually struck by wonderful goodness in people as well as the nastiness in some other people. And it's this mixture that's such a puzzle. Mm. Now, Christians as well as Jews and Muslims say that there is a wise and loving power behind the universe. And immediately and every day we're brought up short by some suffering or tragedy, and we wonder how there can possibly be love behind it all. Most famously, the point was put by Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov. He tells some stories of horrific cruelty to children and says that no happy future, no heaven, could ever justify God creating a world in which such things happen. And he says, it's not God I don't believe in, Alyosha. It's just I return him the ticket. Now, thinking of that challenge and the meaning of Christmas for me, I recently wrote this poem called Taking a Chance. And I should say it goes with a painting done by my daughter, which depicts Mary against the background of a starry sky, cradling the Christ child, who is himself holding a globe. And if I, I may, Jonathan, I'll just read that to you. It's only a short poem. Beautiful. Please do. Uh, Let there be life, he said. Or was it she? Atom, star, cell and plant. Simply let them be. No, Dee said, they will only clash and kill. Yes, she replied, and combine with goodwill. So let some know that their life is their own and grow by reaping the seed they have sown. Stop there, said Dee. They will hurt and destroy all I foresee are seven walls of Troy. I will imbue them with hope, she replied. My love will draw the world close to my side. I'll take the risk and enter their life, expose my heart and let it bear their strife. I will let him go there to crib and grave. From out of their self-made hells he will save. I will cradle the world as Mary the child, and Christ will hold their love, however wild. I will take the chance without foreseeing. They can choose or not to give thanks for being. Beautiful, beautiful. It reminds me about something. You know, after the Six-Day War in Israel, they were saying that they had uh, won the war because God had intervened. And then about six months later, they said, ah, it's because we are great soldiers. And then the God bit, well, it kind of it receded into the shadows. This happens, doesn't it? People sometimes say, yes, this is a godly thing that has happened. This is teaching us something. And then they go back to their old ways. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story all through the Hebrew scriptures, what the Christians call the Old Testament. It's a continual teaching uh, in the New Testament as well, that we have a period of being faithful to God and then everything goes wonderfully with, with ourselves and then we forget about it mm. and drift off in our own ways. But actually, I'm a bit wary about attributing any particular uh, action in the world to God. The meaning of the whole pattern 
is really hidden from us and it will only be really be revealed at the the end i think all we can do is try to to dis- discern uh, in our own actions where we think the spirit of god within us might be leading us or what it might be prompting us to do a lot of people through this plague if you wish yeah yeah you know they'd be saying and what is god's purpose for this we don't know all we can say is that god has created a world in which such things happen God has created the world, as I said in my poem, with a life of its own. Things go their own way. And we know the scientific reasons why this plague happened. We also know the scientific reasons why a vaccine has been found and might be used and why we might get the plague uh, to to go. Mm -hmm. If we believe in God at all, we must believe that God has created a world in which such things happen, nasty things as well as good things. But I draw a distinction between what God permits because it is part of the character of a world which has a life of its own and what kind of directory wills. We only know within ourselves when we are trying to work out what his purpose for us might be at this particular moment of time. So what many people have discovered, those people who are believers, and a lot of people who are actually doing it without without being believers, mm. just trying to discover what good can we bring out of this. We believe that God is ceaselessly at work bringing some kind of good out of evil. And one of the things that is good has come out of this, of course, uh, is the extraordinary sense of neighbourliness, which has emerged in so many areas. Going back to that book in terms of the answer to Ivan, uh, when you look at your own life, are you grateful for the life that you've been given? Yes, I'm very grateful for the life I'm in. That's the, and that is actually the beginning of an answer to, you know, to look at my life. And say, am I actually grateful for a life as me? And of course, we all admire gifts that other people possess and we lack. And certainly I'm conscious of lacking many, lacking many talents and qualities which I see in other people. But in the end, am I glad to be alive as me? Mm. For what challenge, Ivan's challenge amounts to, Jonathan, I think is that it would have been better if God had not created the world at all. Whoa. So am I glad that I am, that I exist as me? It's a question each of us has to answer ourselves. We can't answer it for anyone else. I have to answer it for me. You have to answer it for you. And that's why I leave the question unanswered in my poem. The mm. poem acknowledges that God takes a risk in creating a universe with a life of its own. It will inevitably bring suffering of various kinds. But am I glad, despite everything that exists, am I glad I am me? They can choose or not to give thanks for being, as I put it. That central belief of Christianity that the creator of all things has assumed a human life and that the word became flesh, as the Christmas gospel puts it, it's very difficult to believe for some. I think that many, many people, perhaps the majority, believe that there is some spiritual dimension to life. But their minds, our minds, my mind, 
boggle at the idea of one life being a unique disclosure of this. And of course, Jews and Muslims believe there is one God, creator of all things, visible and invisible, but they don't believe in Jesus as Christians do, though Muslims, as you know, revere Jesus very highly indeed. Now, there's a story of a rabbi and a Christian priest talking together, and the rabbi saying, I believe in God, yeah. but Father, I can't believe in Jesus Christ. To which the priest replies, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I couldn't believe in God. And I think, you know, that sums up my position. I think the challenge posed by so much suffering to a belief that there's a wise and loving power behind the universe is so great that it's only belief that this divine wisdom has entered the flux of human history and suffered the consequences of creating a world like this and has from within history shown that nothing can in the end separate us from his love. It's because of that that I'm able to go on uh, in, in faith. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had the privilege in the past of being involved in a fair amount of interfaith work, and I know Jews and Muslims whom I highly respect and whose understanding of religion is very inspiring. There's so much in Judaism and Islam to admire and learn from. But for me, it's the belief that God himself shares our pain and joy and can win through for us that continues to hold me. And not long ago, I had a very moving letter from a friend who's been going through a most terrible time, and she has Ivan's challenge very much on her mind. And she wrote to me, I have most respectfully attempted to return the ticket, but he keeps handing it back. It seems he hasn't finished with me yet. And he he never finishes with us. This is God's embrace of the world in Christ. It's both a sign and a promise. What would you say to someone at that point when you think, that's it, I'm returning the ticket? People don't want words at a point like that if when you know i've seen a lot of people in my life used to be involved with the samaritans at one point they don't want a lot of words they want somebody alongside you who at least can tries to understand how they're feeling uh and that's that's and i think that's probably what a religious people find also in god there is someone who listens someone who 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 understands and i think being alongside people and and actually in some minute way perhaps beginning to feel a little bit of what they feel understanding how they view the world so blackly but what matters most to people now about christmas is that it's a time to get together with family and friends to relax and enjoy oneself my background has been in marketing heaven help me (laughs) (laughs) and so you know the religious side doesn't seem to play a very large part but it but it hasn't for a bit of time has it you're right and i think that's why some people like myself actually have very mixed feelings about christmas from a purely religious point of view i think i'd like to spend it in a monastery why not simply taking part in the round of Christmas services, yes, focusing on this sublime mystery of our faith. But Christmas, as we have it now, and I'm very blessed, Mm. blessed indeed to have a wonderful family to be with. So I remind myself that what we have was originally a midwinter festival. It was only adopted and Christianized by the church as late as the 4th century when they Christianized the whole Roman calendar. December the 17th to the 25th was the feast of Saturnalia, of misrule, of letting go, if you like. Time to cheer oneself up in the darkest time of the year. Mm -hmm. December the 25th was a very special day in Rome 
for Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun, and that image resonated with the Christians. So I live Christmas at two levels. I'm as capable of enjoying myself and the good things of life as much as anyone else. But I try to see these things as gifts, as sacraments, if you like, goodness, who gives us life in the first place and who affirms the essential goodness of life by sharing it at Christmas. We have adopted it and we have adapted around it. It's, <laughs> but the fact is, it's here now. And so we make the most of it. Shops start advertising Christian things months before Christmas. Well, according to the church's calendar, the themes for Advent in the church are the traditional themes, death, judgment, heaven and hell, not very much to do with Christmas. Thinking about the lockdown, the various lockdowns, were there any aspects of any of it that relate specifically to this Christmas 2020? Uh, there were actually, Jonathan, yes, there were quite a number of things. First of all, I was struck by the great kindness and neighbourliness which emerged. Both individuals and businesses rallied round and they're still doing all they can to support the vulnerable. Now, it's very easy to get cynical and mm. think that human beings are just out for themselves, and I have those moments. So what happened then in the first long lockdown is still happening. Mm. came as a wonderful jolt. Yes, there is tucked away there in so many people a willingness to help and support other people. And for a society that has become rather jaded and cynical, this was a wonderful surprise and something actually we need to hold on to. There is that goodwill inside us, that generosity. And of course, that's the integral to the whole message of Christians. We're made in the image of divine love and we're called to grow in that love. Love came down at Christmas in order to break down all the barriers that stop us doing that. So at Christmas, we rightly try to think not just of our own families, if we're not blessed enough to have one, but those who are on their own or in need at this time. We need to remember, uh, don't we, that for some people, Christmas can be a very difficult time. And if you're on your own, all this jollity and you know forced fun can make you feel even more uh, isolated. And so I think there's another lesson closely related to that, and that's the importance of straightforward human relationships. And an obvious point, so obvious we take it for granted until we're denied it. Of course, very many of us have been on Zoom meetings, Skype and so on. But as we've discovered, although this is very useful and can save a lot of unnecessary travel, as physical beings, we want physical contact. And this came home to me very strongly when we were only allowed out once a day for exercise. And on my daily walk, I sometimes passed someone I knew. Such a relief to stop and chat for a minute. 
at a social distance, of course. Here was real human contact. So this Christmas will be extra precious for those grandparents who haven't been able to see their grandchildren for a long time. And I think, Jonathan, this leads on to a third, third point that's come home to me strongly. On one occasion, recently, I had to go into hospital for a minor procedure, and I was acutely conscious of how everyone in the hospital was important, not just doctors and nurses, but receptionists, cleaners, and porters. They were all essential elements in a team. And I long for a society in which the value of every person and their contribution is recognized more tangibly in financial terms rather than the gross and grotesque inequalities which we have at the moment. And then uh, there is a further point that came to me, and that is the creativity that people have shown at this time. People have developed new skills and interests. They found, found springs of creativity in themselves. I found I was writing more poetry. Others were doing all manner of things from repairing old items, more gardening, cooking, painting. And the brilliant scientists who in such a short time have come up with these vaccines have shown us one kind of creativity. But part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we all have the spark of creativity and within ourselves. Finally, not rushing so much from one thing to another has forced people to look inside themselves more and ask themselves questions about themselves and their inner resources. Perhaps also questions about what they think life is all about and what they regard as really worthwhile. Perhaps it will make us a more reflective society. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, as you know, this this programme is called Thought, but then and Leaders. And from the point of view of leaders, what struck me uh, about 2020 is the word key workers. And these key workers, the people who open the doors, are just as you were just saying. They are the ordinary people, the receptionists, the cashiers, the couriers and so on and so forth without all these people we are nothing really absolutely but let's see it recognized in financial terms as well as goodwill and and, and clapping that that's the point isn't it i mean the 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 inequalities in our society and in the world of no till now i mean of course there's inequalities in life there has to be some inequality but at the moment it's just grotesque the FTSE has been higher than several decades, and I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> it does not make any sense, no. <laughs> I just don't get any of this stuff. No. <laughs> the other thing that doesn't make sense, or maybe it does make sense, you tell me, is the opinion polls before lockdown showed that nearly half the country said that they had no religion. Is that percentage much higher amongst young people? Yes, it's much higher amongst young people. And we are now one of the most secular countries in the world. Mm. And uh, But I think what distresses me even more than that is the way the huge decisive contribution of the Christian faith to our culture, music, art and literature and welfare is simply being whitewashed out of our history. Time and again, a major cultural figure of the past for whom the Christian faith was the mainstream and motive of their life is now treated as though this was kind of a matter of indifference. Wow. And together with this, there is the assumption that religion is a kind of personal quirk which no intelligent person could believe, despite the fact that the majority of very great philosophers and scientists in history have in fact been religious believers of one kind or another. This is linked to a kind of lack of imagination where belief is concerned. Mm. Rowan Williams, when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, said that what he'd like to do was to recapture the imagination of our culture for the Christian people. People may or may not come to believe it, 
but at least let us feel its appeal, its enchantment, if you like. It must have something about it which has appealed so many millions and millions of people, most intelligent people in life, as well as the simple people over, you know, nearly 2,000 after all. Now, after all, the appreciation of, appreciation of any work of literature requires what Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief. In other words, we have to allow our imagination to be engaged. Otherwise, we just don't get into a work, whether it's music or whether it is a novel or whether it's a poem or whether it is a religious view of the world. And there's a wonderful scene in Brideshead Revisited, which I think makes the point in a rather brilliant and humorous way. When Charles Ryder, who was an agnostic at that point, tackles his friend about his faith. But my dear Sebastian, you can't be seriously believe it all, can't I? I mean about Christmas and the star and the three kings and the ass. Oh, yes, I believe that. It's a lovely idea. But you can't believe things because they're a lovely idea. But I do. That's how I believe. Now, that, of course, needs qualifying. Charles Ryder is right. We can't believe things just because they're a beautiful idea. But where the Christian faith is concerned, unless we find ourselves drawn almost entranced by it, we'll never come to believe. And in order for that to happen, we need at least to open the window of our imagination wide enough to look out of ourselves and our narrow minds actually to see what is there and perhaps feel its allure. I hope this Christmas is that, however different from normal, there'll be something in the air, in the music, the carol, the generosity, to arouse our instinct for the one whom great St. Augustine addressed as, O thou beauty, at once so ancient and so fresh. which I call blamange. I'll tell you why I call it blamange. Because everyone is allowed to have whatever personal quirk they want, as long as it doesn't get in my way, whoever I am, yeah? You do what you want, as long as you don't step on my toes, and then we'll all get along happily. What this seems to have done, and I call it blamange, this wobbly mass of nothingness, it's, it's actually very disrespectful to people who do have a belief whatever that belief is because it's just saying well your belief is the same as everybody else's belief or indeed as you put it personal quirk mm. kind of dilutes the whole thing into this i don't know yeah i think no i think you're absolutely right i mean it's it's a, a kind of relativism taking political form it's a combination of political liberalism with social liberalism let the market rip and let everyone believe what they want it's totally false. The fact of the matter is that some things are better than others. Some things are right and some things are wrong. But your wrong may be my right. <laughs> Who believes that torturing children is right? Yeah. Hands up. Nobody does. So let's start with a few basic things. We actually do agree, not simply personal questions of personal choice or taste, but actually there are certain things which are right and there are certain things which are wrong. And it's not a question of simply personal taste. But that's very extreme, 
because you're talking about torturing children. I mean, as you just said, no one's going to disagree with that. But then you get other nuances in terms of right and wrong. It could be about, I need to make money from my financial empire. And then they would argue, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a job and so on and so forth. And so I can get away with certain things. Do you see what I mean? I don't disagree at all that there are certain areas which for a period of time are very confused until it becomes clearer. Society is changing its insights and understanding sometimes, at least, with big changes. You know, when I was growing up, divorce was very, very strictly frowned upon, and the church didn't allow second marriages to take place in churches and so on. And the church gradually changed its mind on that, basically by looking at the scriptures again. Was this really in accord? I actually used to be, when I was very, very young, fairly hard line on that. I couldn't see how the church could allow divorce when Jesus said, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And then when I was a young curate, I visited a very, very sweet, loving couple. And they used to come to church occasionally. I said, why don't you ever receive communion at church when you come? And they said, because we, we weren't allowed to get married in the church. And the vicar said we couldn't receive communion. So that seemed to me absolute nonsense. Right. Both had disastrous young first marriages. They'd made a really good second marriage. That was one of the ways I began to change my mind on as far as uh, sexuality is concerned. The church is in a great muddle at the moment. And I believe the church is being very, very slow to move. I believe that the church should be willing to bless mm. uh, same-sex relationships in church. I relish the fact that we now live in a much more tolerant society. But there will be, Jonathan, areas of confusion, particularly for the church, because the church is by nature a conservative institution. All institutions are conservative. They take longer to change than individual kind of pioneers. But this is not a question of personal taste, one person against another. It has come to a rational, fact-based decision that actually certain things are right and certain things are wrong. If it's all down to interpretation of the Old Testament or the New Testament, and the interpretation changes, doesn't that kind of sully the core metal of the whole thing? Uh, I don't think it all boils down to a question of interpretation. I believe that society is changing all the time. Religious institutions are changing. We regard respect for the, another person and their consent as absolutely fundamental as a moral principle. We all accept now that sexual relationships, which are not based on consent, are wrong. We all agree that people are only able to give their consent above a particular age, whatever that particular age may be. Now, that's a very profound and important moral conviction. And this is one that's overwhelmingly shared in our society. That's not a matter of personal taste. That's a moral conviction, rationally based moral conviction. I came across a word called doom scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> it is so 2020, isn't it? It's people who go on the internet and they just look for everything about everything that's pessimistic about COVID, about the future. Are, are, are you optimistic or are you, you're not a doom scroller, are you? I'm certainly not a doom scroller. No, I'm blessed with a fairly cheerful disposition. So I tend to look forward <clears> with optimism. <throat> Uh, and, of course, now that we're all set to be vaccinated by Easter, there are things we can look forward to doing that we're deprived of now. But more widely, I do worry about the future from the point of view of young people, as I said before. All my life has been built on the expectation that things can get better, and on the whole, they have. Living standards have arisen, have arisen. cures for diseases have been found. We're a more tolerant society now. 
But we are constantly warned by the financial experts that young people will be worse off financially than our generation and the generation before us, mm. uh, which is a sobering thought. Yeah. And more than that, the depredation of the environment and climate change means that the great challenge now and for the next generation is to stop things getting worse. That's a really huge challenge. For the whole of my life, we believe that we could make things better. The right. great challenge now for young people is actually to stop things getting a great deal worse, if not totally calamitous. Good God. And the good thing, of course, is that young people really are apprised of this. They do now seem to be seized of it. And we're all beginning to move in the direction of being much more environmentally conscious about everything which we buy and do. Yeah. Christmas 2020 would be so different for so many people. They'd be thinking, well, there isn't any more Christmas this year. Uh, yes, you're right, Jonathan. For many people, it will be very, very sad indeed. Uh, when grandparents think of their children or grandchildren they haven't seen for so many months, and when children think of their parents having to spend Christmas all alone, there are bound to be a few understandable tears. I know there are already uh, many tears. People have spoken to me about it. I'm, of course, grateful that church worship is still allowed. And in my experience, with rigid social distancing, masks, and sanitizing by the priest at various points, it is COVID-secure. Most people will not be able to sing, though some music is allowed. And now at the Eucharist and the Mass, when we used to exchange the kiss of peace, and usually it's usually these days a handshake, we simply look one another in the eye, hold our hands together with a little bow in what's called the namaste gesture. It's a, still a very powerful sign of being together in, in community. It's silent, mm. but there's this great sense of being joined together with one another and indeed with a whole company of Christians throughout the world and in heaven. And I was thinking recently of the great Christian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung for his part in the plot to assassinate history. He once wrote that it isn't simply to be taken for granted that a Christian has the privilege of worshipping with other Christians. It is what we would call a, a kind of act of grace that we're allowed to do this. And I think of all those Christians in the world who live in countries where Christian worship is totally forbidden, Jonathan, or it's been strictly curtailed, or where people are imprisoned for their religious belief. It is a privilege that we're free to worship with one another, even if, as in this year, there are restrictions. So many people actually feel that with the announcements of tier four especially christmas itself really has been cancelled for 2020 if i can put you on the spot is there a prayer that comes to mind that people even in their solace could say well it's a very ancient prayer by saint Teresa of avila which i find a very great help in times of disturbance and trouble. And it goes quite simply, let nothing disturb thee, nothing affright thee. Patience obtains all things. He who has God lacks nothing. God alone sufficeth. And I find just saying that quietly actually wonderfully calms and strengthens the spirit.
I don't know whether you ever read uh, William Golding's uh, Lord of the Flies, did you, Jonathan? Of course, a classic. Yeah, of course, we all did. You know, just about a group of cherubic-faced choir boys on a desert island who quickly break up into gangs and start killing one another. Mm. And William Golding, who wrote that, was once asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist. Really? And he replied that he was a universal pessimist but a cosmic optimist. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you... Uh, if you like, and so I put it, there's nothing so bad that it can't get worse. Sorry about that. Right. And nothing so bad that it can't ultimately be redeemed, at least from a Christian point of view. Interesting. And I think Golding's aphorism does sum up well a Christian understanding. For the church has always taken what it calls sin seriously. The fact that we can't stop breaking up with one another because there is some fundamental alienation from the ground of our being. On the other hand, I don't believe that God would have brought the world into being unless he was sure he could somehow pull it all together in the end. And because of what we celebrate at Christmas, God's involvement in human life in order to overcome sin and death, I believe very strongly in the wonderful words of the 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. So true. All shall be well. I I, I pray that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well for you and your family. Happy, peaceful, joyful Christmas and for all of us a new year that brings us a little bit of peace of mind. Thank you, Jonathan. You'll find him drinking on the table Rolling dice and staying out till three is a goodbye production if you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or want to chat about the show you can either email reinvent at me.com that's reinvent at me.com or why not visit us at www.thoughtandleaders.com that's thoughtandleaders.com All I need is a hand to stop the tears from falling I will find them, I'll find them next to me Next